So there are three things that you should know about me, about Tim Jones. The first is that I am a drunkard. Well, maybe not a drunkard, but uh, look it. I love wine. I just, there's something about wine that I love. Uh, for the last few years, I have, uh, I ran a little wine business, and there's nothing like going to a winery, sitting down with the winemaker, tasting the wine, and hearing about the year that he or she planted the grapes, what kind of soil uh, that the winemaker planted those grapes in, maybe what the weather was like, maybe a there were storms that year. There's something about wine and doing it with someone and sharing in that experience. So I've been known to be a little tipsy with the wine. I love it. Number two, what you should know about me, is I am a glutton. If you put barbecue in front of me, I am a glutton. If you put anything with cheese in front of me, I am a glutton. Quesadillas, I don't know if you know this, but quesadillas is the sixth love language. I, uh, I think it's probably one or, one or two for me, but uh, tacos, you name it, I am a glutton. Number three you should know about me. I love setting tables. There is something about hospitality that makes me come alive. To invite people into my house and to prepare dinner, put some steaks on the barbecue, to open the, a bottle of wine, and have people set, sit around my table makes me come alive. And I don't know where that came from. But I come alive, and uh, many years ago, I think it was about five or six years ago, a friend invited me to something she called the table. And I arrived, it was this big yard, huge yard, grass, big oak trees, and there was one long table down the middle of the yard. I was like, wow, this is incredible. She's like, well, we've been praying for this for a couple months, and there was 75 people that sat down at this table and we arrived and we looked and I started seeing names in each place setting and then eventually I got to my name and there was Tim and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of thought. There's a lot of heart behind this. And we sat down and I remember just the laughter. You know, you're sitting across from strangers and then as the evening goes on, you start to make friends and you realize, oh, you know so-and-so. And then someone uh, makes a connection for a possible job. People are laughing, and by the end of the meal, it's like we're kind of an extended family. So this is going to be a fun message this morning. I'm going to go kind of fast because it turns out that, as you probably know, uh, sitting under P Peter's teaching, that the Bible has a lot to say about tables. And it turns out Jesus is actually really into tables as well. If you zoom out and think about the entire biblical narrative, just think of how often eating or drinking or food uh, or parties appear in Scripture. It's a really big deal. One theologian actually points out in Luke's gospel that Jesus is either at a meal, going to, meal, to a meal, or coming to a, from a meal, which is really true if you look at uh, Luke's gospel. There's all sorts of tables. There are intimate tables. There are immense tables. We know that table of 5,000. There are uh, tables uh, on the beach. There are tables in the valley. There are tables in homes. There's tables everywhere throughout Scripture. God places Adam and Eve in the garden filled with all sorts of fruits and vegetables, as we know, and except for that one tree over there. Uh, God's provision is seen in the daily delivery of manna, 
for the Israelites as they travel through the wilderness. The prodigal son's, son's homecoming ends, culminates with a feast as dad slaughters the prized calf. God brings, this is one of my favorite ones, God brings the writer of Song, and Solomon, Song of Solomon to a feast, and it goes like this, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I love this so much. He brought me to the banqueting house, that is literally translated in the Hebrew, house of wine. Isn't that great? Just a warning, wine's going to keep reappearing this morning. I remember at Lookout Mountain, uh, when I was a kid, we had our new sanctuary, and I remember Peter had this huge banquet table. It was like three times the, the size of this table, and it just so impressed me. And then as we entered the sanctuary, there was a sign over the, over the um, doors, and it, I think it was, we were trying to remember, the banquet hall. And I'm like, that's kind of weird, banquet? That sounds like something my grandma would do. But now I know after all these years, uh, the seeds and the things that were being planted. We know Jesus eats with Martha and Mary. Jesus is eating a drumstick when he uh, takes a moment and says, we should actually invite the poor when we throw a dinner rather than our friends. He has a meal we know at Matthew's house, surrounded by all of his IRS buddies. Zacchaeus, he has dinner with Zacchaeus, another tax guy. And then the final meal with his disciples that is really at the center of our faith as they celebrate Passover. And it doesn't stop with Jesus' actual life. We know that the feasting continues after Jesus dies and is resurrected. And one of my favorite, new favorite moments in all of Scripture is when Jesus appears to his disciples for the first time, and they're like, is this a ghost, or what's, what's going on here? And, it, and the story's recorded this way. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, hey guys, do you have, do you have anything to eat? Which is so funny to me. That, he's like, hey, I've kind of went on a journey. You got anything to eat for me? Uh, he's walking with, his, with the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we know the story. They don't recognize him, and then they get to where they're going. They sit down for a meal, and it goes like this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Isn't that beautiful? Like something's happening here, that they identify who he truly is at the point that he breaks bread. And then one of my favorite uh, moments, my favorite meals in all of Scripture is soon there after that meal, the boys are back fishing. Uh, he tells them to, you know, put the net on the other side of the boat. And then Peter, in all of his uh, zealousness, recognizes Jesus on the beach, strips, dives into the water, swims to him, and there's Jesus. And he's like, come on in for breakfast. And he's got a wood fire on the beach with fish. And I just love thinking about that. It's so earthly, so just tangible, this breakfast on the beach. And then inside the temple, going back in time, there was uh, in the inner part of the temple, in the holiest of holies, there was the table of showbread. I don't know if you've heard about this, but each week, a representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel would bake a loaf of bread or a cake, and the 12 loaves would be placed on this table in the temple, and it was a sign of offering. 
It was a sign of a remembrance of how God provided the manna in the desert. It was a sign of worship, a sign of friendship and solidarity. Each week, priests would eat this bread, and then the next week, tribes would bake the breads again. And then only how Jesus can do it poetically, then Jesus, as we know, through the cross, becomes the showbread himself. He becomes the offering And he whispers, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And finally, because of what Jesus has done, we have a feast that is in our future that Peter has already mentioned this morning. We will be invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb, our ultimate homecoming party. And it's going to be good. Speaking of the Son of Man, there are, you you might have remembered that the New Testament uses this phrase, the Son of Man. And there's three ways the Son of Man comes to earth. And three ways that sentence finishes. And the first is, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's what he came to do. The second phrase ends, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Again, what he came to do. And now the third goes like this. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. I don't know about you, but that's not what I expect the third one to be. I expect something really religious, but it's no. It's the Son of Man has literally come eating and drinking. First two is what he came to do. The third is his method, is how he came, how he showed up in our reality. So if you've got your Bible, we are in Luke 7 this morning. You can follow along. Key verse will be up on the screen. Just a little bit of context. I'm going to skip through this a little bit until we land, but Jesus has healed the centurion slave. Several miracles here of bringing sick and dead people back to life. The widow's son, he literally brings him back to life. He was dead as a doornail. And so John the Baptist, his disciples have experienced this and are hearing about this. And they go back to John the Baptist and they say, hey, we heard about this guy doing these things. And John the Baptist says, hey, go back and ask, hey, are you the one to come? To which Jesus replies to them. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. So what are the signs that God has come to earth, that Jews were waiting for, the signs that Jesus had come, that the Savior had come back to earth? How do we verify against perhaps the expectations of the Torah and prophets? Well, according to what Jesus says, there's, there's two things. Uh, sick people get better, and dead people are raised. So that's, that's a main thing. And then the poor. Anyone in poverty is about to receive some good news. So when those two things happen, we know that Jesus may be the real deal. And then I love this. Jesus goes on. We're going to skip a little bit ahead. And he says... Uh, to the folks around him, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind, like grass blowing in the wind? 
Uh, what then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. Of course, John the Baptist is neither of these things, and I love, I really love Jesus' sarcasm here. And what's going on is he's calling them and challenging their expectations of what these folks would look like. Jesus connects himself to the prophecies of John the Baptist, who was the one that would precede him. And then Jesus lands his punch at the religious people, the Pharisees. And he says this, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, it's pretty reasonable to think John the Baptist was demon-possessed. I imagine him just frilly and bad clothes and torn clothes and, you know, locusts in one hand and honey and, you know, ranting and raving about repenting. I could see that. I could see that. But John the Baptist, he didn't fit their expectations. And certainly his cousin, Jesus, didn't either. You know, they look at Jesus and they see him having meals and eating and drinking with the famous and the celebrities. Actually, no, not the famous or the powerful. He's eating with the despised, the poor, the sick. Jesus, I want us to see Jesus is doing more than just having parties. The problem with what Jesus is doing is who he's inviting to the party, who he's inviting to the meal. The Jews expected a savior full of might and power and glory. Think Russell Crowe come to overturn the Roman Empire, but instead they get a backwater Galilean eating rice pilaf with the forgotten, the losers, the people from the other side of the tracks. Jesus is eating a meal later at a Pharisee's house, and he gives us instructions for this. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return, and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And then some tipsy guy at the end of the table lifts his glass and said, Blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus tells a story that we all know. Uh, a wealthy individual wanted to open his house and have a great feast, and he told his servant to go out and invite all of his friends. And we know how the story goes. Everyone has an excuse that day for some reason. Some guy has to go get married. The other has to go check his cattle I often have to make that excuse. That's a good excuse these days when I don't want to go to a party. And uh, the this, this slave comes back and says, uh, yeah, these people aren't coming. So the master says, go then back out into the streets and the lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And so the servant goes back out, invites more people. And then what happens? The house is still not full. And the master says, hey, 
compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. Friends, our God of love wants a full house. He doesn't want to settle for any open seats at his table. He wants a full house. I've enjoyed, oh man, I've enjoyed some good meals over the years. Uh, But as Peter mentioned, I was the director of mission and outreach at Malibu Presbyterian Church, suffering for Jesus in Malibu. And I can remember, I can still remember we did these um, uh, dinners with homeless folks about once a month through this ministry, Standing on Stone. It was awesome. And um, we would serve buffet style, and I, I can still smell those unshowered bodies. I can still see those toothless grins of homeless people coming through that line and picking up food, and we would serve them happily, and then we would join them as everyone was served. We would then go sit down and eat dinner with them and just be with them and love them and hear their stories and their hopes and their fears. That was not a ministry or an outreach table. That was Jesus' table. That was a sweet table. And then we would go down twice a year to Baja, Mexico and build houses. And there is nothing like sweating and building in the hot Mexican sun for 10 hours and then getting, you know, the pastor and, uh, you know, some of the families and the local, you know, all all the kids. And then going down to the local taco stand and breaking bread and getting a pastor taco and a Mexican Coke. Oh my gosh, I just started salivating. Uh, There's nothing like that meal. I will never forget one meal in particularly that we had. And one of our brothers, Ramon, an evangelist, decided it was so special for us to be breaking bread together that he proposed to his wife, Lupita, that night. That wasn't some random Tecate taco stand. That was Jesus' table. I remember we took teams uh, down to the Amazon River, and we would spend a week on a medical boat uh, traveling 250 miles into the middle of nowhere and coming across a small village. Uh, we would go out, and for those of us that weren't doctors, we, like me, we would be uh, doing house visits and VBS. And I remember we showed up to this man's house, five or six of us, and when I say house, it was a shack, a wood shack. There's no door, no windows, and we walk in, and he's sitting, and he says, come, come, sit down, join me. And there's two things in his shack. There's a hammock over there, and then there's this huge clump of bananas on the floor. And what is the first thing he does? He offers us the bananas. That was not some random little cabin shack in the middle of the Amazon jungle. That was sweet Jesus' table. And then, finally, I remember some trips to Thailand. We partnered with this organization. Some of you may know Free Burma Rangers, Dave Eubank, who for over 25 years has taken teams into Burma uh, to support and love on and provide for ethnic groups who have been attacked by the Burma army relentlessly for over 60 years now. I always walked away and I said, man, that's Christianity at its best. Dave taking these teams in to love on these people and show there actually may be hope in this world. And I remember going into Burma years ago with Dave and uh, breaking 
uh, not bread, but maybe noodles and chicken and fresh pineapple and these villagers that have had so much taken away from them sat on the jungle ground and offered us their food. That was the table of Jesus. I wonder what it would look like at this moment in our nation's history that if we could just get all of us together and sit down at one long table. No matter what your skin color is, no matter how much money you got in your bank account, no matter what side of the tracks you come from or what part of the city you come from, if we could all just sit down at one long table and not try to figure it out, not try to deconstruct and examine and figure out the decades and the centuries of injustice and hate and comparison. But just start with a, a meal. I don't know. Maybe that would be a starting point. Let me tell you, it's shocking. It's controversial. It is outright scandalous who Jesus invites to the table. But perhaps something else we may have forgotten. At one point in our journey, in our lives, Jesus invited you to the table. Jesus invited me to the table. There may be some of you that are still, that you still may have the party invitation on your desk, not quite sure. But we have been invited to the table. And in a theological sense, we were outsiders. We were the kids that weren't invited to the fourth grade party. We were once on the fringes until we accepted the party invitation. Deuteronomy 10, 19, you shall also love the stranger. Why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Colossians 1, 21, 22. Ephesians 2, we were once aliens. We were strangers to the covenants of the promise. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is so very incredible. And it's so every day that we might miss it, that Jesus chooses something as mundane as the table, as the meal, to symbolize, to represent, to be the catalyst for the entering in of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth. This thing that we do three times a day, and most of us don't even think about it. Amongst our busy days, we just put food in our mouth, but this thing that is unbelievably sophisticated in what happens biologically, sociologically, psychologically, when you sit at a table and break bread, what happens in us? There's volumes written on it. And this is the act that signals the reality and the presence of the kingdom of God. This writer, author Peter Lightheart says this. He says, For Jesus, 
feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, he also brought it into reality through his own feasting. Unlike many theologians, he did not come preaching an ideology, promoting ideas, or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom, and he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. The table, it turns out, is a gateway, if you will, an on-ramp, a foretaste, a preview of the reality that all awaits us through the grace of our sweet Jesus. The everyday table. Jesus says, look at in Revelation 3.20, he says, listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, we will have this big religious ceremony and we'll have candle. No, no, I will come. If you open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. That is Jesus's idea of salvation, of grace, of a shared meal of hopefully quesadillas with our sweet Jesus. Jesus says, I am the real meal. It's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people listening and saying, well, sir, we want this life. How do we get this life? And he says, he declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So when we eat, when we invite others to eat, it's like we're practicing this theological word I love, praxis. We practice. We literally like bring back the curtain, revealing the kingdom of God when we eat. Whether it's Burger King or a four-course dinner. <laughs> it's sacred. The meal is sacred. We know about the great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, but here's another commission for you from Jesus. He says, you know, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and now I confer on you just as my Father has conferred on me a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We have 21 opportunities every week, if you eat three meals a day, to reveal the kingdom of God. I really love uh, that you, you put the church here, Peter. Uh, there's a little restaurant up, just up the street called Tacos, Tequila, and Whiskey. I don't know if you've been there. It is life-changing. I think I came back to Jesus all over again uh, when I ate there the first time. And as you know, as you know, Denver is a foodie town. We, are, we have become a foodie mecca. It's very hard to start a restaurant here. Uh, there's so much competition. There is so many award-winning chefs in this town and... I think it's easy to kind of idolize this and get obsessed with food. And, you know, there's 
there's hundreds of, of TV shows about food, and we can miss the point. And as I was saying, this everyday thing that appears in front of us, and if we don't partake, if we don't do it, we'll eventually die. But this thing, this everyday table that sits in front of us is an opportunity to commune with Jesus and reveal the kingdom of God. And it has always been my position the last several years that Christians should give the best parties. Amen? Amen. I mean, if anyone has a stake on parties or meals or feasts, it should be us, right? Because it's it's all there. And I think our challenge, I want to challenge me and I want to challenge us as followers of Jesus is to reclaim his table to reclaim the ordinary, mundane, everyday table in Jesus' name because it was Jesus' table first. And whether you even know who Jesus is, whether you know what you're doing, when you sit down and eat, you are practicing the kingdom and the coming kingdom and the coming covenant and promise of this marriage feast that's coming in heaven. As we love God, what is the greatest commandment? To love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe we've made that too difficult. Maybe we don't need a program to reach our neighbors. Maybe we don't need books. Maybe we just need to invite our neighbors over for dinner. Or a coworker. Or someone that's having a really hard season. I remember driving up here, I drove up here last night for this, the last night's service, and I pulled around the block, and there was like 25 neighbors having a meal together, and everyone was, the kids were out with chalk on the sidewalk, there was a barbecue, there was, and I, I'm like, God, you are funny, first of all. B, I wanted to park and go and have some barbecue, but I had to come and preach. But I so loved that. Man, and that gives me hope for our city. That people have come out of their houses, off their porches, and are communing. That was so beautiful to see that. It gives me hope. Final story I want to share. Last year, one of my best friends decided that he wanted to commemorate his 40th year on this planet by walking the Camino de Santiago. And I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, but it's the oldest Christian pilgrimage in, in the world. So the tradition is James the disciple uh, causes a lot of problems after Jesus dies, and Herod executes him himself. So you know you've, you've done a good job when Herod himself beheads you, takes your head off. And so the tradition goes that uh, James' the, his body mysteriously tra- is transported out to sea and then washes ashore on the western coast of Spain. And of course, James was a beloved missionary uh, in Spain. He is the patron saint of Spain. And so uh, believers took his body, walked 70 miles inland, and buried his bones, which is now the city of Santiago de Compostela. And in around, I can't remember quite, the second or third century, the Catholic Church built this beautiful, awe-inspiring cathedral over the bones of James. 
And about 600 years later, pilgrims started walking from all over Europe, some as far as even Russia or Asia or northern Africa. And today, if you look at a map, there are trails all over Europe that lead to Santiago de Compostela. It was a beautiful thing. And so my buddy said, hey, I want to walk this. And I hadn't heard of it. And I was like, yeah, I like walking. How long is it? He's like 500 miles. Well, okay. <laughs> it's going to take a little bit. So he ended up walking 300 miles. I joined him a couple weeks later, and I walked about 100 miles. And as you can imagine, something that's been around since 1000 AD, uh, there's a lot of infrastructure, there are hostels, there are cafes all along the way, there's albergues, which are uh, hostels, and it was remarkable. And one of the most impactful things for me was, as we walk this wide path, to think that we are following in the footsteps of centuries of pilgrims. Centuries of pilgrims who had broken families, who probably had lived through a pandemic or a plague, who lived through not having money, who lived through broken family relationships, and something compelled them to walk down the way, that holy way to pay homage to their beloved disciple, James. And so one night, we stopped in this wonderful town, which I can't remember the name of, and we, went, uh, we had booked this guest house, and I will never forget it. We had walked 15 miles that day. I had like a 40-pound pack, uh, which is ridiculous. You're supposed to have a 25-pound pack. And we enter the guest house lobby, and there is Marcella in all of her glory, this brunette uh, middle-aged woman from Chile who walked the Camino years ago and was so inspired by it and was so wired for hospitality that her and her husband moved from Chile to Spain and opened this guest house along the Camino. And she greeted us with this wide smile, and I'll never forget, she had four cold beers in her arms because they knew we were coming. We had registered. So she knew there, was, there were four of us and, uh, of course, there's nothing like a cold beer after 15 miles in northern Spain. And uh, we got to know her, talked with her a little bit. And, uh, and then she's like, look it, enjoy your evening, go to this place for dinner, whatever. Uh, but look it, we're having breakfast at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, and you need to be there. Like, kind of didn't give us an option. She's like, this is not something I love to do for my guests. And so 8 a.m. the next morning, we go downstairs. We literally go down in the basement, and I'm like, oh, this is funny. Uh, there was a huge prep line of, of food, and it was an American breakfast, which she loved doing. And then there was this long table, one long table, and all these people, all these guests started showing up. And I remember hearing Spanish, and I remember, of course, and I heard English, and then I heard some French, and then maybe some Danish, and then we all sat down at the table, and it was such a beautiful thing as you heard all of these language, and, and actually kind of awkward when someone doesn't speak your language, but, uh, you know, there's something about toast and bacon that breaks down those barriers. And it was such a beautiful moment that, however long I live, for an hour on that Saturday morning, our lives aligned around a table. And I don't know if Marcella loves Jesus. I have a, a strong feeling that she does. Because I think she wanted 
to reveal something about her heart for hospitality and the mystery and the beauty of what it is for strangers who are on the way to sit down and pause for a moment at the table of Jesus. I would love if I got to the end of my life, people were like, oh, Tim Jones, he was such a slosh. Or Peter Hyatt, man, that guy was a foodie. I love that guy. It makes me think of, uh, yeah, we are just two wild and crazy guys. Do you remember that reference, Steve Martin? And I don't even know why I referenced that. I think that was before my time, but uh, I love, I love Steve Martin. And I love the table. What we are about to do, we're about to approach the table again. This table. This is a sweet table. This is the sweet table of Jesus that weekly we come back to, to recall, to remind us that we have been invited to the feast, to be renewed by the bread, by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, to remember who is our beloved and that we are his. But this table is a dangerous table because when we come to this table, we are saying, I no longer live for myself, but I receive your life, your broken body. I no longer live for myself, but Jesus lives in me. And when Jesus in, lives in me, my life doesn't look like it used to. Where I spend my time on things that I want to do but my life starts looking more like the life of Jesus when we come to this table. And we start doing things like inviting our neighbors over for dinner or breaking bread with a coworker. Instead of going and watching 30 minutes of YouTube during our lunch, we say, hey, Jim, you want to grab a bite to eat? I want to hear what's going on. This is a dangerous table, but this is the table of freedom, of life. And when we come to this table, we claim Jesus as the bread of life, a preview, a foretaste of our futures. That great long table that has a little place card on it with your name on it, your name on it, your name on it, your name on it. Marriage feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your love. Thanks for your table, God. Thanks for setting a table. And I love how creative you are that you uh, set a table and practice this thing of that we have to eat three times a day, and that is what you chose to symbolize and represent. It's the hint that you gave. It's the preview you gave. It's the image you gave of our future, God, that is ours when we come to your table and confess that you are love and that you are life and that you are the real bread, the true bread sent from heaven, God. Lord, I pray that when we come to your table, Lord, that it's anything but mundane, that it's anything but 
ordinary, that it's anything but route, this route behavior that we do, God, but that every time we come to the table that we are transformed that much more, that we are renewed that much more, that our heart changes that much more from the inside out, and now our lives look differently than they used to look, Lord. Father, because of what you did, because you loved us first, Lord, may we love others. May we practice your table. May we enact your table, and in doing so, reveal the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of wholeness, the kingdom of salvation, the kingdom of healing and life in a really hurting world, Lord. God, we love you so much. Thank you for inviting us to your table, Lord. Amen. So uh, thank you for that wonderful word, Tim. Uh, So we really appreciate that, appreciate you. If you'd like prayer, Ted uh, is over here on the side with the prayer team. Are they online this Sunday or just here? Uh, Just here, here. okay, so Ted is the hot ticket this morning, um, but I'd love to pray with Ted. And uh, I usually end with a benediction that's something like believe the gospel. And you know, gospel, euangelia, is cool word. It means good message, uh, good news. And it's so easy to think, oh yeah, is it really good news? Especially the what we've done with it. We've turned it into a threat. So what do we mean by, what do we mean by good? Well, Jesus is the one that shows us. It's, it's the kind of good you can taste. And that's a little weird, because at first it's like uh, broken body, blood, ugh. Yeah, in this world, sometimes it looks like that. But take a second look. Roast lamb, the best red wine, fresh baked bread. Turns out that God is giving you good constantly. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And how does it come? It comes through his word. And who is his word? Well, that's Jesus the Christ. And he took on flesh just to show you how good he is and how much he loves you. So believe the gospel, and you'll become the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.